Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at On Becoming Pod and Instagram at On Becoming Podcast. Our email address is onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, do send them our way. If you find the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. And if you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at oddbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Many thanks to those of you who have subscribed or followed us, to those who've written, to those who've decided to support us. We are grateful to you all. Last week on our first anniversary episode, I announced that I'll be offering a course on the German philosopher Hans Geir Gadamer. Regular listeners will know that Gadamer has come up frequently on the podcast, and that I find his way of looking at the world both really helpful and truly relevant to many of the issues that are areas of focus for this podcast. What some of you may not know is that I worked closely with Gadamer towards the end of his life. I mentioned this briefly in the first and second part of the brief Gadamer series. After studying Gadamer's thought for most of my scholarly career and working directly with Gadamer himself, I think I can say with some confidence that there are few people alive today that know Gadamer's work and thought as well as I do. But I want to point out that taking the Gadamer seminar isn't just about participating in a class. You'd actually be inscribing yourself into a grand philosophical lineage. I studied with Gadamer, Gadamer studied with Heidegger, who's widely considered to be one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century, even playing volleyball with him from time to time, much like Maverick and Goose in the original Top Gun. Heidegger studied under Husserl, who developed and formalized phenomenology as we know it today. From Husserl, you can trace all the way back to the Forte school, which included such luminaries as Novalis, the Schlegel brothers, and Nietzsche. Taking this class is, in a philosophical sense, like being descended from one of those original passengers that came to America on the Mayflower. Perhaps by now you'd be interested in further details about the course. The course will run for four weeks, with a two-hour meeting each week. You'll be provided with a syllabus that includes all the reading, though you should know that this is going to be a pretty laid-back class. If you want to spend hours really getting the readings before class, that would be wonderful. If you'd rather just come to class and hear about Gadamer, that's just great too. For the duration of the course, you will have the opportunity to schedule office hours with me. During those meetings, I'll be happy to discuss Gadamer, other philosophers you might be interested in, content that's come up on the podcast, or even just to get to know you a bit better. The course will start in October 2023, and enrollment will close on October the 1st. Once enrollment is closed, I will send out an email to all participants with a survey that will be used to set exact dates and times. I'm sure we can work out exactly times that will work for everyone. The final detail, pricing. The course is $200. However, if you are already a Patreon subscriber on or before October 1st, 2023, there is a discount of $40. At the same time, of course, I realize that such costs can be prohibitive. If you're interested in the course, but 200 is just too much for you to swing, do get in touch. I'm confident we can work out something. And now we turn to the second part of my interview with Liz Edmond. 
Listening to it again, I was struck just as forcefully by how powerful her message is. You might find it interesting to know that I discovered Liz because I was thinking one day, I wonder if anyone has ever thought about or written about queer virtue. I googled the term and there was Liz's book. But here's what makes this even more interesting. As soon as I saw her name, I thought, could it be? At Wheaton College, the chapel is called Edmund Chapel. And yes, I discovered that she is the granddaughter of V. Raymond Edmund, who was the president of the college from 1940 to 1965. He was a truly beloved figure. Having spoken myself in chapel at Wheaton a number of times, I had seen a little plaque on the pulpit that indicated that he was speaking in chapel and, while speaking, suffered a fatal heart attack. His message was titled, In the Presence of the King. Before we turn to the rest of the interview, Liz asked me to mention one thing, and that is that she'll be leading a three-day retreat titled The Queerness of Faith, Pride, Authenticity, and the Call to Scandal. And that will be held at the Greenhouse at Barnes Close near Birmingham, that's the one in England, in October 2024. That's a ways off, of course, but if you're here in the UK, you might want to mark your calendar. And now, on to the interview. A basic question here is, and I say this as somebody who's written a lot of books and, and edited books and things like that, usually books don't just come out of nowhere. So what led to you wanting to write this? You know that I am, uh, I'm an Episcopal priest, but I'm also a political strategist. And I have actually made my living primarily in the political world which has been a really wonderful gift, you know, while the while the Episcopal Church has sort of like been making up its mind about ordination of LGBTQ folks and, you know, gay and lesbian folks back in the day when that was the, the big, big hot topic. It's been wonderful to have a real a career to fall back on and uh, to support my family and me, but also to give me work to do in the world. I have uh, long in my political work had the fortune to be involved in the movement for LGBTQ justice in that work. So mm. a lot of my political work, not all of it, but a lot of my political work has involved promoting issues like marriage equality. I was involved in the uh, uh, when the civil union law had just passed in Vermont, which was sort of a pre predecessor to marriage equality. I was there to help run a statewide campaign to secure the law and so, and I, I mentioned earlier, I was a chaplain of folks with HIV AIDS for, for quite a while after I graduated from seminary. In fact, I did that for another four years. And so I watched, uh, I observed, I would say, that even working exclusively within political circles, religious voices were making themselves heard, uh, trying to impede the movement for rights and justice for LGBTQ people. And in fact, very often I, I observed politically, the loudest voices in the room trying to keep us from being able to have basic rights uh, were voices of religious authority. 
So I'm listening to all this play out, mm-hmm. functioning in my, you know, with my political hat on, but I had already been through seminary. I was already in the ordination process. Like I'm thinking about this in both ways at once. And what I knew in my gut was that um, those voices trying to keep us, you know, trying to keep our movement toward justice from happening, those voices were wrong that they were wrong. And it wasn't just that they were problematic, no, that I knew from a, through a theological lens that the message they were preaching was wrong, that the proclamation itself was problematic um, and even blasphemous. And that was just crystal clear to me. Mm-hmm. So so the question then becomes, okay, well then why? you know, And what does it look like to, to try to counter that? It happened that uh, uh, when I was in Vermont working on the civil union issue, uh, I part of my job was to organize press conferences for people representing constituencies that folks might think in kind of a shallow or glib way, these are people who obviously would oppose the civil union law. And so I organized uh, press conferences um, for parents who were in favor of the civil union law, for teachers who were in favor of the law, and for faith leaders who were in favor of this law. So we had this big press conference. William Sloan Coffin was there to like kind of our keynote the whole cool. thing. Loved him, loved him. What a man. Um, and so we had our press conference, and uh, and as we were scattering, you have reporters who were like chatting with people along the side. And uh, uh, unaware, to, to, unknown to me and unknown to Bill Coffin, sadly, a reporter had kind of gathered a group of clergy in kind of one corner of this church where we were having this press conference and was asking them, where in the Bible do you find support for the civil union law? And these, and they weren't able to answer the question at all. They weren't able to reframe the question. They sort of began to stammer, well, you know, love your neighbor, but they didn't really have a, and, and it, it was a colleague of mine who came running to like grab me to say they don't know what to do. And by then the whole thing had broken up. But when, as soon as I heard the story, I thought to myself, that's not okay. It's not okay mm-hmm. that clergy don't have an answer to that question. And so in many ways, that moment became the, 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 the that was like the ground out of which queer virtue then began to take root because it became my mission in life, in a sense, to answer that question. Where in the Bible do you find support for LGBTQ mm-hmm. justice? Mm-hmm. And not just justice, but uh, it just led to this the wonderful, deep, rich um, interrogation of scripture and of my own heart and of our tradition uh, to try to understand, to really to answer the question, why did I know in my heart that the anti-LGBTQ proclamation was wrong? Like, why is it wrong? What, mm-hmm. you know, and, and if that's wrong, then what's, what's, what's a better proclamation? Why? So that's how this, like, it, it took this years-long process for them, the book to begin to emerge out of that. That's a wonderful story. I'm so glad that you wrote the book. Thank um, you. Do you want to talk about the book? Or, I, I mean, I can ask you sure. questions, but um, you probably know the book uh, pretty well and would be interested in, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, 
so the first thing to say about the book, um, and I, I, one of the questions people always ask me is, how do how am I using the word queer in the title? You know, and of course, it, it, the word we we now use the term queer so commonly that you don't hear the reaction that that it still gets from a lot of people. But but the book has been out. Oh golly, the book came out seven years ago. And uh, and even seven years ago, I'd travel around to churches, and invariably, there would be some person, usually an older person, who uh, had come out decades ago, and the word queer just had been spat at them in this you know really violent way. Um, so it was a term that people associated with with violence, and honestly, with spiritual violence. So so people ask me, how do you use the word queer? Uh, and to me. I use the word queer in two ways. One is the way that that is like very common in you know sort of everyday vernacular these days, where queer becomes kind of an umbrella term for LGBTQ experience, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, que- queer and trans people, queer and trans uh, whatever. Um, so there, so that's uh, rather than saying LGBTQ, LGBTQ, or LGBTQ. IAA plus, you know, all those, let that, the alphabet soup, saying that over and again, to me, queer just captures it really, really beautifully. I use the word in another way also, and this is actually why I need the word queer for my work. And that is, you're, you'll be very familiar with this as an academic, but the academic discipline of queer theory uh, uses that term to describe what is sort of the essential impulse or discipline of, of, of queer theory as a discipline, um, and that is uh, to queer, is to rupture or disrupt false binaries. And of course, the idea there is not just you rupture or disrupt any binary, um, because there are binaries that are not false. But you, it, when a binary rears its head, you know, you can interrogate that binary to ask, is this true or is this false? And what we and, and what queerness does is it when the binary is a false one, queer theory jumps in to say, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> is that a binary? And 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 why do we need why are people thinking of it as a binary? What does it look like to disrupt it? So within queer theory, most conventionally. The, the false binary that gets queered is the binary of male and female. Um, you know, and there's this old, old, old idea that, that you know, sexuality exists on a, on a continuum and male is over here and female is over there and never the twain shall meet. Queer experience itself disrupts that as shows that to be a false binary, you exactly. know, whether you're talking about sort of the androgyny of of gay and lesbian presentation or the flat out declaration by trans and non-binary folks that these exist on separate separate ends of a continuum i mean to me this is why non-binary experience is absolutely heroic because non-binary folks say i'm sorry i that i don't live on that continuum at all you know um so we disrupt that that false binary so uh, to me Queerness in this sense, this kind of disruption, becomes this incredibly helpful theological lens. Mm-hmm. So when I look at Christianity, I see Jesus queering binaries all over the place, you know? Exactly. So just, I mean, you know, exactly. Just for instance, just for instance, you know, um, so was Jesus 
human or is he divine? Well, Christians say he was, is both. When Jesus would uh, touch someone in order to, who, touching somebody who is ritually unclean in order to heal them, were Jesus's actions sacred or were they profane? Well, obviously they both, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when Jesus was, uh, after Jesus is resurrected, was he alive or had he died? Well, we say both, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, and then, of course, in the in the in Jesus's parables, uh, Jesus rather relentlessly is challenges his listeners to understand their relationship to other people and to and to queer this uh, this this false binary of self and other you know anytime you know, you think about the 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 men who had gathered to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery and jesus like places his body between them and their rocks and this woman to say let you you who is that without sin cast the first stone you know like like you think whatever the, the problem here is this person as if she were completely apart for, from you think about how you who you are in this scenario, assess your own self and deeds, and then and be- before you cast her over here and begin to pummel her, pellet, you know, pummel her with rocks. Who are you in this picture? So that's and the, you know, and then you have stories like the like the Good Samaritan, you know, and it's just this relentless narrative, um, asking people to question who, who they are, who this other person is, and how do we relate to one another so that's queerness and i just see it you see it throughout the throughout scripture and of course it's not just jesus paul picks up the exact same thing and Mm -hmm. in the same way as paul is like doing this heroic work trying to form these communities that will follow the teachings of jesus paul himself continues this business of disrupting False binaries, and particularly the binary of self and other, and the you know, and the passage where you see it most exquisitely, of course, is in Galatians three twenty eight. You know, you, you are no longer Jew or Greek. You are no longer slave and free. You are no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ. That's the I think the most exquisite most eloquent articulation of it but you see that throughout paul's letters it's Mm -hmm. you know just throughout Mm -hmm. paul's letters so so you know so bruce lee these are not peripheral ideas to the christian faith you know jesus's composition as human and divine the 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 cosmic significance of the resurrection his parables his acts of healing what Paul made of that in forming these these churches, these are central tenets of the faith. These are the core teachings of the faith itself, and they every single one of them queers a false binary. It, and one could even say that the the queering of whatever that false binary is is itself the essential to what the movement is trying to be and to do in this world. So that's why I say that authentic Christianity is and must be queer in that sense. That seems completely correct. I don't know how you could argue against that. Interestingly enough, 
you know, growing up in the evangelical world, yeah. um, most of the time, sermons are taught on Paul. There's a lot less teaching of Jesus in the evangelical world. Certainly oh, when, you're, when you're in Sunday school, yes, you know, there's talk about Jesus. But but when you become an adult and you go to the service, that becomes much less of, uh, of a thing. That's one of the things I noticed when I first started attending an Episcopal church, that the sermon was not always, but most of the time on the gospel. And that was really the focus for the whole thing, whereas... You know, in the world that I grew up, I think back to, you know, when I was in high school, uh, the guy who was the pastor was a Dallas Seminary grad who had, you know, done his three years of Greek and two years of Hebrew and, you know, was going to show us all that he knew those languages and could explain these passages. But it took a lot of the joy out of things. And let's just say he wasn't looking for querying any binaries. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, I think what happens is maybe maybe you see it differently, but what I've seen in evangelicalism is that all of the really good bits of Christianity or about what Jesus says or even what Paul says, those generally just are ignored. We just kind of pretend they're not there because, you know, they're kind of uncomfortable. I was reading an interview with Russell Moore. Do you know who that is? He said, mm -hmm. yeah. And he said something like, uh, just recently, you know, uh, the lady who taught me Sunday school when I was a child said to me something like, we can't talk about the Sermon on the Mount anymore. We have to fight. And that kind of tells you exactly where people really are. Are they taking G Jesus seriously? Or is Jesus just being a kind of tool, a weapon? Well, and Paul, too. You know, it, I'll, I'll tell you that it often takes people by surprise when I like bring Paul into the, 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 my, my theology, but Paul issues really hard challenges to people. And they are, you know, if, if, if Paul is urging people to, to fight, I mean, again, what in, in sort of similar to what I was saying about about the self and other dynamic and the you know throwing the rocks. It's not to be throwing rocks at other people, you know. Largely, what Paul is 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 calling for is this radical accountability. Who are you in this picture? How are you living in this community? How are you holding yourself accountable? for what we as a community say we believe. So anybody who uses Paul then to start picking up rocks and throwing them at, at other people or hurling them at folks outside the community altogether, man, that is a, a complete misread. I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that very deeply. Yeah. So I love Paul. I, I I find him interesting and challenging. I find him, of course, of course, whatever anybody thinks about Paul, he was an astonishing, astonishing intellect just an astonishing breathtaking thinker mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. so 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 just like you know stratospherically brilliant that that his letters are it takes time to comprehend what he's saying at any given moment because he's thinking so deeply and his mm -hmm. brain is moving in so many different directions so that's also it's to me it's just criminal when people take his work in a shallow way, in a superficial way, it's it's a it's a dis, it's a way of disrespecting 
his his work. Um, but I love I love I take issue with Paul. That's part of what I love about him so much is that you can struggle with Paul. You can say, "Oh, Paul, oh my God, like what what were you thinking?" Oh my God, <laughs> you know. But because uh, uh, he's very human, he's very human. Um, but I but I I I'm so grateful for his writing. I'll also say since you mentioned the Episcopal Church, that one of the really beautiful things about Episcopal tradition, of course, is that we, like like many, many mainline uh, Protestants, like the, like the Roman Catholics, we follow the lectionary. And of course, the lectionary uh, hands you um, every week four readings, a, a reading from Hebrew scripture, a psalm, a reading from the epistles, um, and a reading from the gospel. And, the, and a preacher can choose any of them or, or link them to, together and to me, um, a, a community is far better served by preaching that balances those. Those should, mm-hmm. those readings should all be in conversation with each other. Those those um, aspects of our canon, those portions of our canon, need to be in conversation with each other. Um, uh, so when Episcopal priests preach predominantly just the gospel to me we've lost something my other spiritual home is a synagogue mm-hmm. actually and it has opened my faith my heart my mind in profound ways um to spend time exclusively within the hebrew canon you know just it's it's what a gift what a gift I can only imagine that's not something I, I've experienced less. So there yeah. you go. Yeah. So do you want to talk about some of the themes in queer virtue? Um, obviously, there are many different ones, and I will allow you to pick whichever one you, you'd like to start with. Well, so I'll pick up from where I, you know, where I left off with this idea of of queerness and just say that um, having said that, um, uh, authentic Christianity is and must be queer, that begs interesting questions about how then do we live into the essential queerness of the, of the faith? And my response to that is, well, we are really lucky because there are these people walking around planet Earth who have vast expertise in what it is to live queerness on a daily basis. And of course, those are <laughs> folks who identify as queer ourselves. Um, so uh, so what the what queer virtue uh, largely is, is a, uh, an exploration of what queerness is um, um, sort of like juxtaposed with uh, Christianity in order to understand how do these paths align? Because what I've what I've long understood, just in my own preaching, you know, like I'll be preaching some some text, and of course preachers always start with you know an anecdote. Like you 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 know what you're going to say, and it's like okay, we got to come up with a little anecdote that makes this like really easy for people to to grasp. And what I found early on for me is that my anecdotes always came from queer experience. Like over and over again, I'd be talking about you know. Oh, the ACT UP meeting that I'd just been to, or the Lesbian Avengers, or the, you know, the the, the lesbian theater that I was part of, or, you know, like these ethical stories that mm-hmm, came out mm-hmm. of that, ex- that experience. And I had to at some point stop talking about it because I realized that's just all I would talk about. But the question that remained was, why are those the anecdotes that come to me again and again and again and again? Um, uh, so... 
um, so what I began to do was, okay, let's drill down into queer experience itself. The book articulates what I call a queer ethical path. And it goes like this. Um, uh, so queer people, very often, our experience looks something like this. Not, this is not true for everybody, but very often for people. Um, uh, what is queer experience? Well, one, you have to discern an identity inside of you. Um, that's a, a, an intimate identity. This, this affects uh, who you are, how you perceive your relationships, how you navigate relationships in the world. You have to tell the truth about that identity, even when doing so entails risk. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's like the second step on the path is having the courage to tell the truth about that to yourself and then to out loud to other other people. Queer people have to find other people who share that identity and you know learn like forge relationships with each other in order to understand what this identity is, what it demands, what it makes possible. Um, I call that the ethical step of touch. Queer people then. Um, have this history of we build community together. And very often those communities look to the margins to see who's still struggling and determine to do something about that. So to me, those are those are the steps of, of uh, identity, risk, touch, adoption, that's building community together, and then scandal, which is like looking to the margins and, and helping folks out. Well, the thing is, as a priest, I know those are exactly the steps of Christian ethics. That's exactly what Christians are called to do. We are called to discern an identity within ourselves. And we are people, we are children of God, saved by the salvific actions of Jesus Christ. Like, then know that in our hearts, not just because somebody told us about it, but, but, you know, like understand that in our lives and in our hearts. Um, That's a question of of identity. We're supposed to tell the truth about that, about that identity, not in a way that's supposed to be violent toward other people, but in a way that, you know, you witness to your faith in a way that is supposed to be healthy and healing an invitation mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to other people. We have to find other people who share those commitments, build community together. And then Christian community at its best is supposed to look to the margin, see who's struggling and do something about that. So those are two paths, queer and Christian, which are essentially the same path. And what I do in Queer Virtue then is every, the first part of the book, there are two parts of the book. And the first part of the book is looking at each one of those steps, identity, risk, touch, adoption, scandal, looking at it through the lens of queer experience, looking at it through the lens of Christian experience and asking how might queer, how might Christians learn from queer experience? What do queer people have to teach Christians about what this path is and how to walk it well? Then the second part of the book is called A Priestly People. And the idea there is that if faith communities really took these queer lessons seriously, what might that look for, look like in Christian community? That that part's uh, I think uh, in in a certain sense more difficult. Yeah, because, oh, yeah. Because it's actually living living these things out. Yeah. Um, I I I realize that you have different things that you uh, are talking about in that section, but one of them was pride, and it's it's so interesting that you've chosen pride. I mean, it's a in one sense, of course, it's a you know a 
queer trope. Why I find it so interesting is that at least the way I grew up, pride was like one of the worst possible things. And in fact, one of the difficulties I had uh, teaching at Wheaton, where, where I would encounter these really, really stellar students who, you know, excelled in so many different ways, but they had been taught that they couldn't really say, you know, I did this. It was all like, well, God did this, you know, blah, 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 blah. And, and of course, that's true too, because any gifts that you or I have, we, we didn't earn them. We just, we just got them. But on the other hand, we do talk about taking pride in one's work and things like that. And so I found that students often just, they had no idea how to, how to negotiate this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly why I, I knew I needed to take that head on. And honestly, it's a really interesting um, conversation for folks who are Christian to to engage. It's complicated and 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 difficult. The the you know queer people have had to and continue to have to work hard to reclaim a basic sense of self worth mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. our value as human beings is relentlessly trampled particularly again by voices of religious authority yes so you know the we get these messages in the public airwaves you do not have to go sit in a church pew to hear this you can just listen to the public airwaves right now and hear voices of religious authority telling lgbtq folks you are your identity is not an identity that doesn't actually exist that is not of god the more you say that this is an identity that's true the more you debase god's creation i mean it's what we hear it's horrible they're horrible messages and for so many queer and trans folks they're just they're spiritually eviscerating mm-hmm. you know yes. so one of the first things that we have to do as a people individually and collectively is just re, re, you know, get back in touch with that sense that okay i know i am a human being of worth i have i am a human being at all i am a human being i know i know myself i know the truths of myself those truths are beautiful and valid and valued and then you know, and and one hopes that someone that that a, a person can can then make the 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 leap into not just valued by me, not just valued by my community, but valued by God, as as well. That's pride. That's the journey into pride. Um, and for queer and trans people, it is a life saving concept we know this i mean mm-hmm. literally life-saving you know being able to emerge into a healthy sense of pride can be the difference between someone killing themselves or turning and living a, a, a healthy a healthy life so in the book i refer to that as pride with a capital p but you know, as you say, Bruce, if they, you know, if you, you know, if you were looking for a concept where the, you know, that that best illustrates, encapsulates the challenge that we have in terms of dealing with religion 
there's no word better than pride because while it is this life and I would say soul saving concept for us, it is, it is a salvific term for queer people. Mm-hmm. It is the word mm-hmm. that is hurled at, you know, everybody, not just queer people, as you're saying, it is this word that gets hurled at people as like the worst sin, the worst sin. So in the book, I distinguish between pride with a capital P, this healthy life affirming thing versus pride with a small p that appears you know relentlessly in sermons and hymns and you know as this bad 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 thing and yet i think even folks who are not thinking through a queer or trans lens do have some sense that you know if you are a parent there are times when you are filled with pride in your children for instance, you know, and you can use the word pride. I'm so proud of you, mm-hmm. you know, and know that that's, a tr- that's true. It's beautiful. There's something so important there that you're communicating mm-hmm. that you feel. It's a real thing that you're feeling. Pride in this beautiful, good, spiritually affirming, life-giving way. So I, I really question the kind of a, a, any any glib use of pride as this bad this bad thing. I think that's really uh, I think it is simplistic it, and uh, and 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 wrong headed. There is a, like a spiritual kind of a spiritual arrogance that is absolutely a a, pr- a problem, you know, or anything that is separates people from each other. I'm here I am all by myself. I'm so wonderful, you know, and all those other people are just so pathetic and that's so terrible and and I can punish them at will because I'm so good. Yeah, that's uh that that perspective there is something really wrong there. There's something and something yeah. really unchristian, really unchristian there. Um but let's not call that pride. Let's call that something else. Seems reasonable to me. So a question that I have for you as you go around and speak about the book, what are you seeing in terms of people who've read and inwardly digested what you've had to say in terms of how they are thinking differently? Well, first of all, I have to tell you that I, I, I'm not missing the, the the reference there to our baptismal covenant of read, 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 read. Well, actually, it's not this baptismal. That's my ordination vows to read, mark, and inwardly digest scripture. You know, I'll tell you, when Queer Virtue came out uh, seven years ago, it was really the crystallization of what many people were sort of reaching for. Um, I'm not the only person who was thinking these things. The, the, the book itself that did, like I think, it, uh, was kind of an early marker and signpost for for folks. But what I I noticed two really important movements at a social level. One is that this business about the value of queer souls themselves is far more uh, common, and I would even say taken for granted, within queer community. You see queer people claiming their own spirituality with such beauty and joy and and mm-hmm. and grace, I I, I heard a, an interview with Billy Porter not long ago where he was saying the first thing they take from us is our spirituality, you know. But and then moving on to talk about how beautiful how beautiful queer spirituality 
is, you know. So that's become more part of a part, part of a, a, a I would say kind of an accepted part of queer and trans discourse. Thank God, a lot. So many people still struggle with it, of course, but that's a real shift. And then the other thing that I see operating both at the communal level, but also at the individual level more, is um, uh, folks come to me now asking. Um, okay, so what does all this mean in terms of what we should be doing right now to heal a deeply troubled world? So, for instance, when uh, when the when in the first few years after the book came out, when I would go to speak, um, mo- most of my conversations with folks focused on the, that first half of the book that that queer ethical path and what you know what how does that all work? What's the theology? Where do I see that in scripture? That that sort of thing. And it and it and for the most part, people kind of didn't know what to do with the second half of the book, which is saying, so this is this is what it means for us in our communal mm-hmm. lives mm-hmm. if we take this stuff seriously. Increasingly, particularly I would say in the wake of COVID, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I've got more and more people who are coming to say, wait a minute, look, can we talk about the second half now? Like, what does this mean for us? How should we be responding to a world that is in crisis right now? One of the ways that uh, folks will articulate that is they'll say, my church, my diocese, my synod, whatever. We have been open and affirming, welcoming and inclusive for years and years and years. And what's crystal clear is that it's not enough. What should we be doing now? And so that's this shift from thinking it, it's just all about queer experience, queer people, like, you know, into, wait a minute, queerness becomes this authoritative lens for how I live my faith. And many, many people are beginning to perceive that. That's the shift that I fundamentally, that I, that, uh, that gladdens my heart, really. That's wonderful to hear. And it gladdens my heart too. Uh, I'm uh, uh, a philosopher, but I always tell people I'm a very practical guy, and I'm I'm most interested in studying philosophy that has something to do with real life. Liz, it's been a delight to have you on the program. Our guest today on the program has been the Reverend Elizabeth M. Edmond, who is the author of Queer Virtue. The subtitle of that is What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bruce.